0: Thank you so much for checking out the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. Support for this episode comes from Paragus Northwoods Company, located in Ely, Minnesota.
1: Hello, this is Ted Bell with Northstar Canoes. I am the president of Northstar Canoes Incorporated, former president of Bell Canoe Works, and have um about 40 years of canoe manufacturing under my belt. I have been uh, happily involved with Paragus Northwoods Outfitters and Steve Paragus up in Ely since the late 80s when I started building Bell Canoes. Steve and I have been good friends. He's a phenomenal supporter of the Boundary Waters, great person for resources of for trips where to go. He sells our canoes nationwide and somehow delivers canoes from Florida to California. I don't know how he does it. Steve and his wife, Nancy, joined our company on the Rio Grande River last February on a eight-day, 85-mile wilderness adventure trip. We're really pleased to uh, have Pragas Northwoods Outfitters selling our product. They do a wonderful job representing our product, as well as other companies. We are uh, proud to support Pragas Northwoods Outfitters, the Boundary Waters, and this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness
2: that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you
3: swim through the lake, you have breakfast, and you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking.
2: We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake and I remember catching
4: walleye there before.
5: I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time.
4: The route
2: from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with
5: only a day pack. Uh, We take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star. And in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue,
2: WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Baxley. And I'm Joe Fredericks. Today, we are going to be hearing from a couple of epically experienced paddlers. I would even call them elders of our paddling community, Bob O'Hara and Ken Kosick. Between the two of them, they have compiled over 100 years of Boundary Waters travel. Excited to, to hear their stories today. But before we get to that, Joe and I are going to try a totally new thing this month. It's October. Ooh. Ooh yes. <laughs> you know, Halloween, uh, fall, spooky, scary. And uh, because of that, we
0: are putting out a call. What we're looking for is the spookiest, scariest, Anything of that nature. Most terrifying. Most terrifying. It can be, we're looking for stories, of course. That's what the podcast is all about. And these spooky, scary, terrifying stories can be funny. They can be, you know, actually scary. Something scary happened to you out there. Either weather or an animal or something happens on your trip. Or totally spooky and unexplainable. Whatever it is, send that story to us
2: via email at podcast at gmail.com. What
0: are we going to do with them? Well, so we'll pick from these stories, uh, hopefully, that people send in to us. And you can send us a one-line or a sentence, a short paragraph describing it. And Matthew and I will judge or, or choose what we think is the scariest story. And we'll give you a call. We'll get you on the phone so it doesn't matter if you live in Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, Minnesota. Indonesia. Grand Marais. <laughs> <Ealy>. <laughs> um, We'll get you on the phone, and we'll just record a 10-minute conversation with you, and we'll make that a short track uh, that we'll feature here on the podcast in October. So we are counting
2: on you and asking you to jump in here and uh,
0: and scare us. Yeah, so that's on the table. The challenge is out there. We'd love to hear your spooky, scary, Boundary Waters-related theme stories here in October 2018. So let's move on. There is... No shortage
2: of things we could say about uh, the gentleman that we have on the show today. So we're just going to let them say it for us and uh, let's get to it. So we are here with Bob O'Hara, a personal hero of mine. And we're here to talk about Boundary Waters, but if you know anything about Bob, you know he has a extensive, epic, notorious fame for many different canoe trips. So Bob, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you so much. It's good to be back in Grand Marais.
2: Well, welcome back to Grand Marais as well. Can you tell uh, people who may not know who you are, would
4: you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I, I was a high school teacher and I taught biology and I coached. And I was attracted to the boundary waters by reading Sig Olson in the 50s. And I came to Ely the first time in 59. I rode the train from Duluth to Ely. And we went out for 15 days, 100 and some miles, and we saw one Canadian ranger. Mm. And that intrigued me, and this is my 60th consecutive year in the Boundary Waters. I'm doing two trips this year, one on the Gunsland side and one on Ely side. Hmm. In 1967, um, a friend of ours discovered an out-of-print book by Eric Severide, which has now been reprinted, and it was to go to York Factory. And so we did that in 67, and that's when I discovered further north, and I fell in love with the tundra, and so I've had... Almost fifty years of Arctic travel and sixty some years of boundary water travel. And so the day school got out, I would leave and I would come back the day school started.
2: Wow. So being a teacher has its perks when it comes to being
4: <laughs> a
2: lot of <laughs> paddle perks. Explorer. A lot of perks.
4: Tremendously. The thing is, the finances weren't the best, so you had to make sacrifices for nine months to enjoy the three months. Mm-hmm. But it's well worth it.
2: That sounds well worth it. So you took the train to Ely, or to Ely, you said? Ely from Duluth to Ely. And did you have any idea that first trip, what you were getting into?
4: Well, we didn't. We we were big campers from the Boy Scouts. We had our own homemade tent. It had no floor and had no uh, mosquito netting. And I didn't sleep on any kind of a pad for at least 10 years or more. We just slept on the ground. Um, We knew a little bit about paddling. I had learned at camp. That's where I saw my first canoe was at camp. And the reason I fell in love with a canoe is we had a little rowboat. And there's three things wrong with a rowboat compared to canoeing. One, you're facing backwards. (laughs) Two, you got the seven and a half foot oar. And three, it takes forever to turn. A number of strokes. And with a canoe, you're facing forward. You're turning a dime and you go fast. And I fell in love right there.
2: Mm, It was instant instant. Was that on your first boundary waters? No, that
4: was in 1955 at Many Points Go Camp.
2: Wow. Yeah. So that that's really where it all started.
4: That's where it started, yep.
2: So when you, you you're describing this uh different type of of canoe camping, right, as a as a young person. Right. Uh minimal, sounds very minimal.
4: Absolutely minimal. Uh and all cotton clothing and sailor hats. So I got a picture. I found a picture. We looked, so one guy had his letter jacket, and we, we, and we, we went to an outfitter. In those days, everything was cans, and we loaded us up with all these cans, which that's the last time we ever did that because I don't need to carry any more beef stew and all the water in the can. And right. We learned in a hurry. A lot of extra weight. Yeah, and a lot of extra weight. And um, we found our way. The, the interesting thing on that trip was we got to Crooked Lake, and all the bays, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we weren't quite sure where to go. We took the map out and the compass. And on the first round, we had four different opinions. And then we did it again. And then we had we had two of the four agreed. And we did it again. And three of the four agreed. And the last guy never knew where we were. You know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: but we found our way. And then we had Lac LaCroix. And it was pounding ways. And i that's the first time I ever figured out what a windbound was. It was pretty mm-hmm. obvious it wasn't safe. So we went to shore, threw a tent up, fell asleep. I woke up about 10 o'clock at night. The moon was out. Got the crew up. We paddled all the way through Lac Lacroix In the dark. We, in the dark. You could see silhouettes of what I thought was shore. When I went back 50 years later, it was all islands. I couldn't believe we paddled uh, right, right down yes. the middle of Lac La Croix. Mm-hmm. And then we went up Little Indian Sioux. We climbed a fire tower. And when the one guy got on top, he couldn't get down. He was petrified. So we had to uh, blindfold him and then walk his legs down the fire. <laughs> <of the water. laughs>
2: so, a little uh, impromptu rescue. Little improm- yes, you
4: just make it up as you go. But it was a wonderful trip. Nobody had a life jacket in those days. Yeah. Life jackets were non-existent, you know.
2: So, it. I mean, you're, you're describing real-time learning. Oh, yeah.
4: Absolutely. Wh- where
2: you weren't... Uh, yeah. Like we were just laughing when you came in about the, uh, the, fo- the permitting video right? and how you fulfilled your obligation right. on your way in because right. you're right. heading into your own trip right. now. Right. You didn't have any of that.
4: There was nothing. Um, there wasn't, and there weren't very many people in 1959 and there were 40 signs out in, in the forest and there were warnings of waterfalls, which are now not legal because it's a wilderness. But, um, And the maps, I love the maps. They say, you know, for their liability, say not for navigational purposes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, you know, but everything I've ever done is I always take notes of what I would change differently or what I'll never do again. And this
2: is kind of like a post-trip reflection you're describing.
4: And, And that's how you keep moving forward. And then the other thing is before I go on a trip, I always take a walk through the grocery store. And see what's new. I don't use the same menu every year because mm-hmm. things change. Products that weren't available 40 years ago are now readily available. And uh, you can pack out of the grocery store like nothing, you know? Yeah. It works really well.
2: Yeah. Know? So if, you know, we're, you sort of created this uh, picture of bare bones, camping, you know, barely a tent, right. barely a sleeping bag. Right um, finding your way in the dark. Right. That was your, that is your roots in the boundary Waters. Exactly. Yep. And you said, how many years?
4: This is my 60th year.
2: So your 60th year yep. and you've learned a lot in that time.
4: I'm still learning in it, there. Oh, yeah, still learning. There. Exactly. Yeah. And we, you know, we had, I've had different canoes. So I had, uh, we had, you know, aluminum canoes, and then later, when I went to Canadian Arctic, I was using 18-foot canoes that weighed 98 pounds, and I used them in the Boundary Waters. And one year, I, I bought some 20-footers for the Arctic, and I tried them in the Boundary Waters. They're 120 pounds. Mm. But the longer the canoe, the faster they go. And um, now I'm, I'm 77, and so now I'm using Kevlar. Mm-hmm. I have I have my original club paddle that I was way too tall and, mm-hmm. and was using my arms way too much. And I now have a 13 ounce bench, half carbon fiber paddle. So as you get older, you make adjustments so you can keep doing what you love to do.
2: And this is what you love to do. do, Right. So what, what does it look like now when you go in as a contrast to those roots?
4: I think the biggest difference is, and it's two things. One, the boundary water is more popular, which is wonderful because a lot of people are getting exposed the other thing is that when Quetico changed their fee system, when we used to go to Quetico, you bought a sticker for 250 and you stuck it on your canoe, it was good for the whole season. Mm-hmm. And now it's $20 a day, and so that's forcing more people into the boundary waters economically. And so campsites was, were really pristine. You could camp on a campsite that maybe hadn't been camped on for a year or two or maybe only a few people in a season. Campsites are really getting hammered. And so they're really getting worn out, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the one thing you see. On the other hand, it's much cleaner than it ever was because of the leave no trace, no bottles, no cans. And the biggest thing I think that they did is when they put the first, first toilets were boxes. They were two by six boxes and heavy. Now they have the fiberglass toilets so they can move them easily. But people would defecate all over the campsites, Mm -hmm. just a little ways out. And now it's all concentrated and it's away from the campsite. And that really, I think, has helped the Boundary Waters.
2: Mm-hmm. So a, little, a few management strategies. A few management
4: strategies, right. A lot of people don't like rules and regulations, but if it wasn't, it would be a garbage dump. Right. And it's really important that we preserve the area. It's a unique area.
2: So you, you've personally observed that change. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And the Leave No Trace. So uh, the
4: Forest Service had a movie because everything that came in tin cans before we had aluminum cans and tin cans rust. And the Forest Service had a movie and showed you how to punch a hole in the can, go out to the middle of the lake and sink it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of tin cans sunk out in the Boundary Waters. When aluminum cans came, two things happened. One, people didn't take them out and sink them, and two, they just chucked them in the water off the campsite. And it was a mess. And so the no-can, no-bottle really made an impact on the Boundary Waters.
2: So that makes a lot more sense where that specific regulation came right. from. Absolutely. It actually has a purpose. Oh, absolutely. And a history. Yes, that, absolutely. And I'm, I remember when I learned that, that that's how the, that waste was disposed of. Right. I started, I started looking as I would paddle across lakes, see if I could see any mounds <laughs> of cans. I haven't seen any yet, though, so no, that's pretty good. <laughs> no, they're probably all
4: sunk way down. they probably rusted out by now. Probably. Um, yeah, more than likely.
2: So you're on your you are heading in on a trip right now. Right. Yes. Um, tell us what's what's coming up for you.
4: Well, I'm going to Camp Manojin first because they send people to the far north, and I try and help them out. I try and meet with their guides and answer questions for them, and I I give them a Nunavut flag when they're in Nunavut. and And now we have these new maps that are printed on plastic, and you can download them from the internet. So I'm giving them a set for their trip on the Noah Lake, Hunwalk, Kazan to Baker Lake. It's a 529 mile route they're going to do in 40 some days. They got a crew of four or five and, and, and all these camps that go North do a really wonderful job for young people. And then I'm doing something I've never done before as I'm doing a, um, a, trip to Newfoundland for seven weeks to see Canada in the provinces, going to the Canadian Canoe Museum in Peterborough and I I normally carry camping tents and and tents that stand high winds like I use in the Arctic. And you're down on your hands and knees to crawl in. And so I went out and bought this 8 by 8 by 5 foot tall car camping tent. It's a marmot Marmot four-person halo tent. Mm -hmm. And I've never used it. And so I thought, I need to test this out this week and find out what's good, what's bad. And so I don't get surprised. So we're going to do that. And um, I've never had a chance to walk any of the trails around Duncan Lake, and Mm -hmm. so we're going to do that. And then I'm going back to Ely and doing an eight-day solo in the end of August through the first part of September. And I really have enjoyed solo paddling the last five years.
2: Tell us about that.
4: Well, one, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. You you can do your own thing, and uh, solo boats have become very popular now. And um, I use a double-plated paddle on the lake. It's so much faster. But uh, kayak paddles are too short for a canoe. They're not long enough. So there a couple of companies make long paddles because the canoe is wider, and so you have a bigger reach. Mm-hmm. And then I carry a, I carry a solo paddle or a single paddle if I'm going to do a river. Um, but I remember when the first time I took my solo, I went to Lake One, and there were some retirees from Duluth coming behind me, and they were tandem, and I was solo. And they couldn't catch me with a double-bladed paddle. <laughs> but when we get to the portage, they went right by me because I can't. It takes me two or three trips on a portage.
2: Right. So, so it's got its uh, pros and cons in that Absolutely, way. Absolutely, yeah. But y- you found that you can really fly.
4: Oh, you can fly like crazy. The solo boats are small. They're fast. They're sleek, and I and they're lightweight. hmm Some are only thirty-some pounds. You
2: know. Yeah. And what are you paddling for your solo trip?
4: Um. Well, I've got an. I've got a Bell ABS. Mm-hmm. Um called a Lone Star, and it they, they does rivers really well. It's got a high bow to it. And uh, I had a, a Kevlar solo boat, but it, it didn't fit, it didn't balance for me when I put some weight in. A lot of solo boats are only made for four or 500 pounds total. And you're carrying more than and that. And I'm it carrying counts. more than that because I'm over 200 pounds myself. Right, you're gear. not a small no, man. No, <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a small man, but not anymore. Things change. <laughs> Time changes, yes, it does.
2: What is there something about the solo trip experience that you appreciate
4: what the solitude is nice and when you when you're in a high demand with a lot of people um when I taught and right now I do 90 athletic events a year for four different sports and some I manage and some I'm just the head official but you're I just finished the section meet we had 32 teams and 900 kids and I hire 70 people and that's kind of madness for two days. Sounds like it. We got lightninged out for the part of the first day and we had to come back and make things up to get away from that and go out in nature and just enjoy. And a lot of times I don't travel a lot of miles. I'll just go into all the little bays and coves and all these little creeks that run into a lake. It's Mm -hmm. a good chance to paddle up until you can't paddle anymore and come back down. And my very first solo trip was was um, many, many years ago, and I went out of Ealing on the Quishway River and went into the Gabbro Clearwater area, and I had a brand-new textbook. And so I sold out, and in the morning, I did lessons. In the afternoon, I would swim and paddle around the lake and explore, and it was such a wonderful experience. Uh-huh. It was the best of both worlds. I got my academic work done, <sighs> sleeping out under the stars, and... um and and still had a great time. Speaking of stars, when I used to take students up here, we lay out on a pre-Cambrian rock, and the kids would look up, and one kid would say, how come these stars don't shine in Minneapolis? You know, Mm -hmm. we have so much light pollution, we don't see stars. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the advantages of bringing young people north to the Boundary Waters, and you guys have it up here every day, but people in big cities don't have that, and that's what's so spectacular is the night sky.
2: It's really incredible, isn't it?
4: And then I remember when the first satellites came up and you could see these little things zipping zipping across the sky. Now there's a lot of satellites. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, one of, and I know we're here to talk about you, but I think you can relate to this and I'd like to know how uh, your experience of this, but one of my, my personal most uh, awe inspiring memories was paddling seagull in the dark. Oh, sure. And it was a perfectly calm lake. And so the night sky just continued in its reflection in the water. That's really cool. So surrounding yeah. it' was like yeah. it was like paddling in an infinite universe right. yep. And uh, and it sounds like you've done some of that.
4: I've done a lot of that, and I, I paddled in Quebec one year. We, it was uh, it was northern lights from from sky to sky, and we've been windbound and we had to paddle across this lake. In fact, we are laying back in our canoes and just awe inspired by all these northern lights. You almost forgot you're in a canoe. I almost rolled over. <laughs> and, and then the other thing was when we hit the other side, we couldn't see and we're kind of dead reckoning, but we're listening. We were listening for the sound of running water because the rapids coming out of the lake. And two things, we got to find where the outlet is and two, we don't want to go down the rapids. In the right. car. But, but your senses are so keen at night when you don't do that during the day. It's just so unreal. you know. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. You know, Bob, one thing that, sticks out to me that I really appreciate about you is you seem to have a sense of service.
4: That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's been my mantra. I think maybe also my nemesis, but it's been my <laughs> mantra. Right? So, so how, uh, how do
2: you see that? Like, cause you're in service. I and mean, it seems like in a certain way, at least uh, in, in the, the topic we're talking about, you're sort of in service to the boundary waters and, and seeing it's, seeing the future generations, staying engaged. So what's your approach to that? How do you sort of, how do you find your way into that element of it?
4: Well, I think it's mostly a share thing and I'm more interested in sharing with people and giving them ideas and teaching them that there's not a set dogma. Mm. And the other thing is I I had a guy come and talk to me about traveling north and, and he said, you're not bragging. I said, what's the brag about? It's a giant camping trip in the tundra (laughs) And as cool as can be, and he goes, "Well, yeah, but nobody does it." I said, "So what?" You know, <laughs> and I, and, I, and I think I think there's a nature of people who go outdoors who come back and they they want to tell people how they conquered the world, and and yeah. I would rather come back and say, "You need to go out and see this, or you need to go mm-hmm. and experience this," because I think that's the way it has to be. You know, it's
2: a um, building a relationship with those places versus dominating them. Exactly. Yep. And I don't know about so are you seeing cuz I know I feel like that is an older sort of approach.
4: Well, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know. And e- I'm an older guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I I mean even mean like the sort of like conquering the mountain right. approach, yep. you know, comes out of sort of these European right roots. Yep. Um right. And I'm seeing a a movement away from that. That's are you seeing that too?
4: Y- yes. Yeah. I am. The um, A couple of things I can share with you that I've learned over the years, um, some little sayings that we have. One is keep the round side down. I tell that to people all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I had a group tip a canoe on me and they reached way out as far as they could reach to get a glass of water. And I mm. said, what's wrong with the water next to the canoe? And it's the same water. <laughs> so they roll their canoe. The other is if you want to rough it, you put sandpaper in the seat of your pants. Because when we go out, Canoeing. People think you're out in the wilds, that things are impossible. People live that way for, for eons and eons. It's easy living, if you know how, and it's not rough at all. Mm-hmm. And the other is that, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's an economic term, but you have to earn everything you want to do. You have to do the portages. You have to do the bugs. You have to do the hot days. And the one that's most important and that runs your entire trip is nature bats last. You do what nature does. And so when it's windy, maybe you can't paddle. And people will come up here on a four-day weekend, they've got to get back to the office. they are on a big lake like Siegel or SAG, and they, they think that they're gonna if they don't go to the office it's gonna be a catastrophe, and they end up losing their life because they tip over and drown. Right. And and they don't have things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to do. So nature bats last. I mean I said and I said for my first Arctic trip, I said on a frozen lake for 10 days because the ice was ungodly thick and we weren't prepared. First trip, we had no lining ropes, didn't know how to walk on the ice. They made me bring a rifle, which was, thank goodness, because we shot small three small caribou. We ate caribou for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I wrote lots of notes, like bring more tea, bring more soup, bring more this. <laughs> but that's how you learn, and the thing is... You, so what? And if I've never missed school. I, I've, I've come within eight hours of missing school, but I've never missed school. But if nature says it's not safe to travel, you don't travel. Mm-hmm. And if you've got this mindset, I'm going to travel because we have this life we live in and, and doing everything by the clock, then you're not going to make it in the woods because yeah. you're going to get in trouble. You know,
2: The rules are different. The rules are very different. Yep. Right. And, and, and so what, what's the rest of that? Nature, bats? Bats, last. Last. Last, yep.
4: Okay. Nature rules. Another way of saying it, nature rules. And so you respect nature.
2: So... is that something that you f- feel like came intuitively to you, or did you have to battle your way into that into that knowing?
4: No, I think it came intuitive. Well, in the very first trip, when the waves were so big and the canoe was pounding, and I'm thinking this is not safe, we should go <laughs> to shore, you know. And then you wake up and it's calm as can be, and say we should paddle. So yeah. it's mostly intuitive. Books can only do so much, and and if it's not intuitive, then you're probably not doing your trip. You're doing somebody else's trip. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got to do your trip.
2: You got to do your trip. Right. And that is going to look different every time.
4: It's always different. That's what's so fun about coming back. It's not the same trip.
2: Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, so you keep coming back. Right. Uh, Do you have any favorite? I I hate to say favorites, but do you have places that really um, are dear to you in the Boundary Waters?
4: Well, I have a lot of places that are dear to me, but they've changed. For Mm. example, we had the Blowdown. That yeah. changed Kekakabik. We've had a couple of big fires on the Gunflint that have changed everything. Um, we've had uh, motorboats on some of the lakes now, which is fine, but that those motors are not the same because there weren't, no, even though there were motors legally there in the early years, there weren't motors. You weren't uh, seeing them. No, because it hadn't been established yet and the resorts hadn't been established yet. So, so. You know, and then there were a lot of the routes are circle routes, so you can take a nice big circle. But they, they've changed over time, so you keep on looking for new. And I, and I still haven't been in all the lakes, and I'm not making an attempt to go to all the lakes. <laughs> You've got
2: to be getting pretty close, by. I am,
4: but you know, I tell you, some of these lakes that you know, it used to be when when you were younger, you look for the longest portages because that meant on the other side there's no people. Right. But today, at my age, the longest portage is not what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. But some of the exciting portages were the ones where you walk along and you slip off, and you're in waist deep muck. You know, (laughs) you got a canoe on top of your head, and you go, "What do I do now?" You know.
2: And then it's an epic just to get out. Just to get out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always changing for you.
4: It's always changing.
2: Yeah. So I know you've you've described that the boundary waters are changing for you. You're changing in that space. Absolutely. And so what, what do you, what is the, if you were to cause you're an elder in my opinion.
4: Yeah, I am. Um, uh, I, I uh, basically tell people I'm now part of the geezer generation. <laughs> you know? I'm not afraid to say that. What the heck, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, and co- what comes along with that, it, it, that I think you embody is that sense of service, that responsibility. You're aware that you are in a position to um, pa- pass on what you know. Right. And the wisdom that you've accumulated. Right. So um, if you, and I know you're, and I know you've given talks on this. Um, it, speaking to our our community, because I consider this our paddling community that right. we get to talk to on this platform, what are the things that you would want to tell them are, um kind of your top lessons?
4: Well, first of all, there are there are three simple letters, food, shelter, clothing, which we do every single day. And everybody in the world does every single day. But when you go out to the wilderness, your food changes. Because in the Boundary Waters, now you've got regulations too. Your clothing definitely changes, but the clothing for me changes constantly. Now I can use this quick drying nylon. We used to wear wool pants. Wow. Right. And or cotton in the very cotton, Yeah, cotton. Bath, <laughs> that was so we, own, we own blue jeans and flannel shirts, you know. And then shelter. And shelter has changed dramatically. And, um, and much of it's for the better. And and But you don't have to be high tech to enjoy the wilderness. And, and there's lots of things to, that you can do. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing that's changing, and I don't know if it's good or bad, is when we went in the wilderness, you had this little voice in the back of your mind saying, if you screw up, you're going to die, mm-hmm. you know, and it's always out there. And it's 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 good because it keeps us honest. And it also makes you hone some skills so that you feel confident that you're not going to die. Um, what's happening now is we have people who have little to no experience. They'll go out with some garbage bags and they don't have a map and don't know how to read it. But what they have is a satellite phone or they Mm -hmm. have an in-reach or spot or in some parts of the Boundary Waters, in Ely especially, you can get some cell service. And that is encouraging people to go out and take risks that they're not even aware of. And then that impacts other people to have to go out and bail them out. Right. Or they just recently had a drowning over in Ely of a guy who didn't have his life jacket on, which Mm. is unfortunate, you know. But, so it's a simple, yeah, simple thing. Right. And and sometimes on a hot day, they're not comfortable. But on the other hand, you didn't that cold water. It's you can't swim like you normally do. Right. So that's a problem.
2: Yeah. So that's the, re- the respect of the wilderness yep. that you're talking about. Yep. That when you're, I feel like when you're paddling along, it's bright and sunshiny and you feel like you're in paradise. Right. You can feel very far away from the dangers.
4: Oh, absolutely. You're not even aware that there might be danger there, right? Right. But on a windy day and big waves coming in, and just the fact that a lot of the Boundary Waters doesn't have sand beaches, and to land on a rocky shore and not bust your canoe up or not have something happen to you, you have to kind of understand what's going on. Yes. Yeah.
2: I hope that that's a message that is really carried from this. Uh, and, you know, the Boundary Waters Canary Wilderness, I think because of its popularity and because of its accessibility, it maybe doesn't carry the same intimidation as, you know, where you, places that you've done right. uh, in the far north. And, and, but it sounds like you treat both with the same level of uh, respect.
4: Well, you have to. You know, it's it's the same it's it's a different environment, but it's the same skill set mm-hmm. and it's the same challenges. And like I say, nature rules, nature bats last. So whether you get wind in the Arctic or wind on Seagull, it's still wind and you have to respect that.
2: Yes. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I know we're just about out of time, but I want I wanna hear, even though this Boundary Waters podcast, uh one, did you ever make it to Baffin Island? Yes. You did. Yep. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well,
4: I didn't canoe to Baffin Island. That was my goal. I ended up flying to Baffin Island <laughs> to do to do a heritage river called the Soper River. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, you know, we all have delusions of grandeur. Of and, course. And back in the seventies, I thought, well, I can just paddle this whole Northwest Passage with a canoe, and I started out from Baker Lake to go up to. Chantry Inlet, and then we are going to go on the Boothia Peninsula and then fly out and fly back, to make it a three-year project and just keep moving. And we got stuck in the Arctic uh, Arctic uh, Ocean ice that had never been there in August, and that oh, year wow. it was. And um, had to get a modified rescue to get out, but uh, that was fine, you know. <laughs> are, you, are you getting used to that at this point? <laughs> well, you know, you, you go up north with the intention that if things don't work out, it's my first 30 years in the north, we had no contact. Right, and the same thing with the boundary waters. We had no contact. So if you're missing, where do people even start to look for you? Right. You know, you don't know. So um, that's the nice thing about the satellite phone. Because before we would either have to get out to a village, or we had to get out to where a bush pilot would fly in and pick us up. And two things: one you're hoping he didn't forget (laughs) 2 you're hoping he's hoping the weather when he gets there is landable. Mm -hmm. And three, you're hoping that he knows where you are and, and you will get there on time. Mm -hmm. And there's all these, what ifs. So, you know, some things you control, some things you can't.
2: Yeah. A lot of things you can't. It's funny, but one of uh, the things I remembered from that first talk that I heard from you, I, I believe this was you is, uh, brightly colored gear
4: oh absolutely and so everything right, I yeah. buy now
2: is, <laughs> and explain that real quick for me if you well
4: the, the, the ethos when the ecology movement started was to blend in the woods and not be seen and that's true and for the boundary waters that works but in the Arctic you, when you have someone looking for you where a plane's going to pick you up you definitely want to be seen you also want we have lots, a few long portages and people start out with two packs and set one down a guy did and we couldn't find it because it was camouflage, and so we way to do a military grid. It took us half a day to find the pack. So I came back, and, and in 1980, I bought all red packs. I now have red canoes. I got brightly colored tents. I like to wear a red shirt a lot. So, <laughs> so when you lay something down, it, it it speaks to you. Right. Otherwise, you lose it. You know? Right. So it's a matter of practicality. That started out in in Colorado when people were camping. They had all these orange tents, and you look out in the mountain, all you see were all these orange tents. And they right. said it's. It was, you know, eye pollution. On the mountains, that's probably true. In the boundary waters, you get back in the woods, that's not such the case, mm-hmm. you know?
2: Well, I've even found that I appreciate when people have bright tents because then I don't waste time seeing if right. the campsite's Exactly.
4: Occupied. <laughs> you look. You get, in the, you get in the lake and you start looking down the road, and, oh, where are we going to go now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. It helps. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. So,
2: Bob, I, I just want to thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to me, and I, I I hope it's an equal honor to all of our listeners to get to hear from you. And I just want to point out, you're on your way to another act of service, right? Uh, you're going to Camp Minogen. right? And you do this talk every year.
4: No, I don't do I don't do talk. I've already met with the guide. I'm bringing them maps. Mm-hmm. I, I gave them all new maps for their trip, and they're doing a route that they haven't done completely before. It's a route I had done. I've been encouraging them to look at it and this is the first guy who bit on it so
2: oh gotcha very
4: excited about that yeah they're excited about that too
2: so it's a new a new horizon for a lot of young paddlers exactly right and that's really what it's all about that's exactly yep well best of luck on your trip in thank you and uh i hope we can talk to you again on the podcast it
4: would be fun yeah thanks a lot you're welcome
5: Come down in a shimmering rain Oh, for the yearning in my days Black and stump bleached by the sun Oh, for the yearning in my days Blind and light flash off the sea Oh, God, the northern shore and curve, me. Me to my very core.
0: Just an excellent conversation there with Bob O'Hare. Uh Matthew, I really appreciate it at the end how, I mean, here we we're talking with this experienced, well-known, well-recognized paddler, uh, of course, all over North America, not just, you know, Quetico boundary water scene. And how he tied it in there at the end with the next generation talking about the the next age of paddlers and and how, I mean, you could hear in his voice that that was, it's important to him that people continue to enjoy this wilderness. And I thought that was a beautiful sentiment from Bob. Yeah, I got
2: a tremendous amount of respect for that man and, uh, and what he values about passing the torch on. And that's a, a huge responsibility, uh, to keep our community alive. Uh. And then there's Ken. You know, if you we've talked all about gear on the podcast, from shoes to stoves, uh, footwear to paddles, and touched on a little bit about one of the most important things taken into the Boundary Waters, which is the boat. And Ken's going to tell us about boats.
0: And stopping by now to talk making canoes and. Paddling in the Boundary Waters area is Ken Kosick. He lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and this year completed his 50th consecutive year of making a trip to Quetico Provincial Park. Ken, thanks for stopping by to talk canoeing with us.
3: Well, first of all, let me say thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's quite an honor to be here and participate.
0: Yeah, no, we're we're honored to have you here. This is great. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So I want to open with, you know, I mentioned you've done now your 50th consecutive year uh, here in 2018 entering Quetico Park. And uh, a number, you've done more than 50 trips. You've made uh, some multiple years, you know, in years you've made multiple trips and so forth. But I want to start out talking about uh, your class that you've been teaching now for about a dozen years. Uh, 12 years at North House Folk School here in Grammaray. The course is Techniques of Woodstrip Canoe and Kayak Building. And I want to talk about basically building your own canoe. And this, to me, seems like on the surface a little bit of an intimidating concept, building my own canoe. How in the world would I do that? Uh, but, Ken, it seems like as far as, you know, my background, what I've uh, learned about you and your course, maybe it's not so intimidating. What's
3: what's your story here with building canoes well some people are intimidated and particularly by the the glassing process and using the epoxy and that type of thing but uh like you say i've been teaching up here for 12 years and um teach twice a twice a summer and enjoy the the camaraderie and the people that i meet uh i tell people if you can tie your shoes you can build this canoe and they look at me and they laugh and we worked uh, Canoe Copia several years with North House, and I'd have a canoe there, and in one particular time, there was five guys that walked up, and I was on one side of the canoe, and they were on the other side of the canoe, and they said, wow, we, we could never build anything like that. And I said, guys, if you can if you can tie your shoes, you can build this canoe. No, I said, no. He said, we've all got Velcro and loafers. And I looked <laughs> over the canoe, and sure enough, they all had Velcro. <laughs> and. It offers and I've put my hands up and I say, I'm sorry, guys, I can't help you yeah. guys.
0: <laughs> You'll have to
3: rent a Kevlar or something. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, truly, you, you the steps are very easy, and um, we've had people that have never had a plane in their hand or a saw in their hand, and they managed to build this nice wood strip canoe, and it's been fun uh and it's a family thing sometimes there's a husband and wife sometimes a son and daughter sometimes a couple of cousins get together in the class that i teach in september the, the earlier class that i teach it might have uh, 8 people who've never met them met, met each other and uh, it's interesting to see the camaraderie and the friendships that develop and everybody's got a story and uh there's some great, great stories out there.
0: Yeah, and so I think one thing for me, Ken, personally, about uh, building my own canoe if I was to explore this endeavor opportunity would be how do I get started? I mean, so what type of supplies are you using, and how do you just get the wheels, how do you get out of the gates?
3: Well, uh, that's a great question. I like to tell people that I don't care if you want to learn how to golf or swim or cook food, it's always good uh take a lesson from somebody and if you're really interested and passionate about whatever it is go ahead and explore that by taking a class someplace and continuing your education but primarily the canoes are built with uh, cedars red western red cedar but you could build it with uh, redwood you could build it with eastern cedar so that the wood although it's very beautiful and really sets the canoe off is a core material for separating two layers of glass. So it's a sandwich construction, and it's very, very strong and very, very light. And uh, you have three layers of resin, impregnated uh, fiberglass cloth on the outside of the boat and followed by a couple of layers, five layers, six layers of varnish. So you've got a very hard, strong surface. If you do hit a rock or something, it's gonna be just fine. It's, it's not gonna be the end of the world. So,
0: and, and so North House has uh, the materials. If you sign up for this course, the materials are included in maybe a tuition n- fee or something. No,
3: uh, they're included in a tuition fee, but I pack my Suburban pretty well full with all my own tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many different little steps to this process. Uh, so instead of going and running and trying to find a pair of scissors to cut the fiberglass cloth, you're not going to find a pair of scissors in a typical woodworking shop. Uh, they're available someplace on campus, but I bring my own hacksaw, I bring my own coping saw, I bring my own saws, hand saws, my own planes, and so I've got those things laid out. I have to bring uh, tape, fiberglass cloth, the epoxy, System 3 epoxy. Uh, so basically I bring everything, fill the back of that Suburban and put the wood up on top, wrapped up in a nice tight waterproof bag. and. Uh, take the eight-hour drive up here and stop at the scenic cafe and uh, another place to get some nut, ice cream nut for away it's it's not a bad trip to come up
0: yeah so then the students use these materials that you bring that's in included in the tuition course and uh, costs and so forth and i'm still uncertain about from from my vision of how i would go about doing this if i took the course on just the the first day or, or the first few days of how do we actually start to construct and put this puzzle together, if you will.
3: Okay, so in any any endeavor there's a you have your own language, whether it's golfing, you have the words four and birdie and
0: par and all this kind of Yeah. Stuff.
3: So in the canoe building business you've got it's got its own language. You have a strong back. Well what the heck is a strong back? Well it's a, a beam that's straight and uh, level. And so you put templates, which are actually cross sections every 12 inches. If you took a canoe and cut it every 12 inches, you would have a, a different cross section. And so those those cross sections are called templates, and they're aligned on this strong back in the order that you would put them in a the canoe. And you have to align those in a perfect straight line in a perfect plane. And after you get that done, then you can start planking the boat with the cedar and. Uh, you staple the cedar onto those templates. Some people are not using staples, they're just doing it without anything like that, but I can't teach a class in seven days and build a canoe without using staples. So you glue these planks together and the staples hold those planks together until the glue dries. And after you plank the whole boat, you pull all the staples out and it, it somehow it all stays together. Well, then you sand it and clean it up, and uh, put the fiberglass cloth over the top and wet that out with your epoxy and uh, you're going to squeegee off that first layer after maybe half an hour or so of the epoxy setting up then you can come back the next day or four or five hours later for a second coat of epoxy on that and again squeegee that off and then the third layer of epoxy goes on uh, there's a brushing technique so you eliminate hopefully eliminate all the sags and runs you have a nice smooth surface ready to go. So after that outside skin is put on you can wait a day and take that canoe off those templates and off that strong back and put it in some saddles and uh, start working on the inside. And so you'd clean up the inside and then lay the cloth on the inside and wet that out with the epoxy and normally you only put two applications of epoxy on the inside. Then uh most people think, well, it's this is we've got the canoe done. Well, it's amazing how much time the thwarts take, uh, that put the gunnels in the deck, deck plates, and so uh, you can spend a lot of time working on those things.
0: And so you've got uh, the sh- I saw sort of uh, what appeared to be like the shell of a kayak uh, while I was down at North House here. In September 2018 and uh, witnessed one of these it was a kayak in this instance being made by a couple from the Twin Cities and uh, at that point they needed to somehow you know extract or be able to get into the kayak so for for let's, let's switch it up uh just because we primarily talk about canoe travel here in the Boundary Waters on the podcast so how would you get the shell off and and hollow that out you just extract that and leave the thwart, or do you reinsert wood for for a yoke and a, a thwart, or how does that work
3: for a canoe? For a canoe, yeah. So you you go ahead and pull this off the templates, and you build the inside with the glass, and now you've got the core. You've got the core material surrounded by two layers of cloth, and so it becomes very very strong and stable. But there's still a little give, and in any canoe, you need the thwarts in there to stiffen it up, and you need the gunnels to stiffen it up. So go ahead and put those gunnels on, put the deck plates in, put your thwarts in, your carrying yoke, and uh, seats, and uh, wait a few days for the resin to cure out completely. It takes 11 days for the resin to cure out completely, and then put the the varnish on it. Uh, Pettit's Captain's 1015 is what we use, and uh, you should wait about 11 days for that resin to cure out completely before you varnish the canoe. And then uh, she's ready to go.
0: Yeah. So the difference between building a kayak and a canoe is that on the kayak that I saw down at North House was there's not going to be that upper level where you have to cut out a, an entryway because it's just you're just building a, a ho- it's already a hollowed out dugout when you're forming the canoe in the first place
3: as opposed to the kayak. That's correct. On a on a the kayak the, the process is a little different. You have to you build it upside down just like you do a canoe. And you do the hull, and you you take it off the set off the te- off the strongback with the template still in it, and you put that in the saddles, and the templates are still in the kayak, the hull of the kayak, and you you taped that edge of the of the hull, and then go ahead and plank the deck, and uh, the tape keeps those two from getting glued together, so now you've got you you complete the deck of the of the kayak and now uh, you separate those two so now you've got the deck in a in a pair of saddles and you've got the hull in a pair of saddles now you've got to clean out the inside of both of those and fiberglass the inside of the deck and also the hull and after you do that now we're going to put them back together again and create the kayak and before you put them back together again it's a good idea to cut out the cockpit and build the coaming so you got a way to wait, uh, to get to get that done put your foot braces in put your seat in before you put the two halves together
0: yeah that makes sense all right well absolutely <clears throat> and so how much of a hands-on process is this for the, a student uh, who would take this course from you to build a kayak or canoe are you just more an observer and they're actually you know getting their hands dirty to for lack of a better way of describing it
3: oh that that's a great question Joel um uh, there's a fine balance between having somebody watch me build a canoe or kayak and having them participate in the build. And I I try to have the students build as much as possible. And a simple task is pulling out the staples. And while I'm pulling out the staples, they're doing some work on the boat, the delicate work of filling in the football of the kayak or the football of the canoe, which is a after you, when you start planking the boat up, all of a sudden you get to the the very bottom of the canoe or the very bottom of the, of the hull of the, the kayak and you have this opening that's a shape of a, of a football. And so those pieces have to have a triangle on each end and it has to be exactly the right length. And so while they're doing, I show them how to do that, and while they're doing that, I'm pulling staples. I'm doing some of the cleanup work and keeping an eye on making sure they're doing it the right way so uh most of the people that come up here want to build they want to use their hands they don't want to watch me build they want me to teach them how to build and i'm more than happy to do that and so far it's been a great ride
0: yeah all right so let's talk about the functionality of of these uh watercraft that are being built through this course and, and your teachings because the couple that i just referenced who are from the cities and were up in september 2018 at north house building this kayak they were telling me they're taking that home i mean this isn't you build it and then north house hangs it on a wall necessarily or you take it or sell it or something they they bring that home with them and so is that that's part of the course
3: that's the second class that i teach is in september and that that one uh like i said a father son uh husband wife whatever the team comes up and they build a canoe or a kayak they take it home it's an expensive class uh it's four thousand five hundred dollars so it's not it's not uh, not something that everybody can afford. Uh, the earlier class that I teach in June is in that nominal six fifty seven hundred dollars, and so I have eight students in that class. And at the end of the at the end of the week, at, at the end of the canoe build, the, the canoe is ready to to go someplace. And so, if you're interested in owning that canoe, uh, with the understanding that you're going to pay for the materials plus twenty five percent to the school. Go ahead and write your name on this little piece of cedar and throw it in a hat and and uh see who who comes out and wins a wins a canoe and uh so that's somebody's always gone home with the canoe or kayak it's uh so it's a two different two different classes that i teach uh basically teaching exactly the same thing but it's a little different situation uh you know people come up to build a canoe but there's there's all kinds of other things that happen during the class and it's camaraderie that that people develop and uh, stories that they tell uh, and there's people that uh... there's things going on in their life that you as a teacher don't know about and uh... they come up here not only to build but to get away from something and, and, and experience something new uh, and so you as a teacher have no idea of that kind of impact that you have on people's lives. And uh, you may find out later that uh, somebody's wife died. You know, I had, a, I had a guy and his wife coming up to take the class. And the guy was from the Twin Cities and he had a brother in Florida. And uh, two weeks before the class was gonna happen, his, his brother's wife died in Florida. And he said, I'm coming down to get you. And we're going back up to Minnesota and we're going to take this class for 11 days so there's there's all kinds of other things that happen and um, I think that canoe building is one thing but this this other thing that happens is really really important and it's uh so I'm happy to contribute in that process and get people's minds off of whatever is going on in their lives and I don't know about but yeah I'm sure just, uh an, an enabler in doing that and that gives me great pleasure
0: yeah and in some ways uh you know uh in the less uh the physical sense of we don't know exactly the emotions that the boundary waters and quetico feel oh. as as an entity but uh and many would view it in the same way as you as the course that people come to escape or or get away and and start a, a new chapter much like they do when they go to quetico or or the boundary waters right and so ken how about the 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 canoes and kayaks that are being built, I mean, we were getting into that. These often end up on trips going into the Boundary Waters. These are watercraft that are built and they're beautiful, but they're also functional. And and have you heard from students who have taken a trip into the Boundary Waters with one of these uh, canoes?
3: Yeah, we've heard from students that go ahead and take them in. Um, There was a couple of guys uh, that built with us last year and now... They were up visiting this week while I was building here, and uh, they took the canoe that we built last September back up into the Boundary Waters and had a good time. And uh, we've taken our own canoes that we've built up into the Quetico in the Boundary Waters, and it's amazing how many times somebody, you know, canoes by that's going in the opposite direction or maybe somebody that we're passing on the water, you know. We like to canoe fast Mm -hmm. sometimes. Uh And... uh, but they'll say, you know, oh, it's a beautiful canoe. Did you build it yourself? Uh, uh, how much does it weigh? Where are you guys from? And uh, so that's happened so many times, over and over, over the years. And and then so when you're on the Querico, you may not see somebody for a couple of days. So then one of our guys would in our canoes, we'd paddle up to each other and we'd we'd kid. We'd say, you know. Did you build that canoe? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you know, (laughs) you helped each other build these canoes. (laughs) So it's been a big joke. And then uh, the other part of it was, uh, where are you guys from? And uh, we'd say we're from Madison, Wisconsin, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it would say somebody somebody came up with this craziness about, uh, oh, we thought you were peanut farmers from Georgia. And so this peanut farmers from Georgia thing has been. Um, a continuing joke for 20 some years. Within your core with our, group of paddles. our core group yeah and uh, if I can just deviate a little bit from the canoe building but uh, there was a time we were coming out of Agnes and uh, I canoed my partner and I canoed past a, a group of uh, high school guys with a counselor and we had a nice little visit with them about where you're from and da 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 and back and forth and I said, there's a canoe coming right behind us about half a mile down. I said, when they come by, do me a favor. Ask them where they're from. And uh, when they say they're from Madison, you say, oh, I thought you were peanut farmers from Georgia. <laughs> you set it up, all right. I yeah. set it up, yeah. Of course, when we got to the partage, you know, the canoe said, hey, Ken, you did that, didn't oh, you? Oh,
0: they, they—they were tipped. They didn't uh, immediately fall for it. Yeah, I bet <laughs> there was an
3: initial reaction. There, there was an the initial yeah. reaction. So <laughs> I said, "What are you talking about? What are you talking about?" So with this background, there's four of us camped on uh, on Mac Lake up in the critical. And and uh, I woke up and uh, I thought I heard a helicopter flying over, and so I asked uh, my partner in the, in the tent. Uh, Ernie Turk I said did was I dreaming or did did you hear a helicopter too he said yeah he said I I I heard a helicopter I didn't I don't know if I was dreaming or not but yeah I heard a helicopter so we're both convinced that we heard a helicopter and so when my son woke up I said did you hear a helic?" he said helicopter I didn't hear no helicopter you guys are you know, you've been dreaming. Mm-hmm. So for the next couple of days, you know, we'd wake up in the morning and my, my son would say, did you hear a helicopter again last night, Dad? I said, no, no, come on. I'm, I'm telling you, it was two nights ago and, you know, so that was it. So we go down to highway, and we're going into Kawa Bay and down into Carnipi and uh, my buddy Joe Brusca and a gang of guys are coming up the other way. And uh, my son had paddled up ahead. They want to fish Cannabis Falls for smallmouth. And so I met Joe at this little campsite, and we, they're, it's kind of neat to meet another group coming the other way, you know, guys that you, you've canoed and fished with, and so little you know, hugs and slaps on the back, and, you know, how are things going back in Madison, et cetera, et cetera. And then Joe says to me, he says, uh, did you hear about that helicopter that was in flying over the park i said geez here's somebody that's got uh you know i'm going to verify for my son that i actually heard this helicopter you know the joke is over i i can prove to my son kenny that i heard the helicopter i said joe what was it what was it here for he said ken they were looking for peanut farmers from georgia <laughs> so those yeah, guys he tipped him off yeah, they great. tipped him off <laughs> good so oh, you gosh. know at times like that uh really a lot of fun add to the trip and so it's uh it, it keeps just, you coming back for oh, 50 years yeah I'll tell you there's stories in animal sightings and uh I can I can go on and on about animal sightings we have saw a cougar one time up on Mack Lake mm-hmm. we've seen moose swimming across but uh probably the most interesting one was uh Arnie Turk and I we that same night that we heard the, the helicopters the next morning, <laughs> this is the truth. Uh, I've always said you can almost always hear wildlife before you see wildlife. I mean, that's pretty typical. You can hear an eagle screaming before you see it, it causes you to look up and it's there. Well, that morning it was dead calm, and I hear this clunk clunk. You know, some rock is hitting another rock. What's going on? And we look down the shoreline, and there's a there's a head swimming across the lake. So Arnie and I jumped in the canoe and paddled down there. While we're paddling down, there's a second head. And we get a little closer, there's a third head. So it's a a moose followed by a calf, followed by a black bear. No kidding. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> we got close enough that I could hear that bear breathing. <laughs> Hadn't. so I took a picture of, of the bear, but I had not I was so excited I should have got behind and got a picture of all three. I didn't do that, but I did get a nice picture of the bear swimming in the lake and um so that was a pretty exciting
0: yeah any conclusion to that did uh, anybody make it you know well, sure, we, safety we, everybody
3: we you know we probably just should have let things happen, but somehow I decided to get in front of the bear and cut the bear off. Mm -hmm. And so the bear turned around and went back the other way. And so then we just watched as the moose, the the cow and the calf got there. Well, the moose, the calf, the cow got there first, and we're waiting and off to the sideline. And for some crazy reason, the calf, there was a big windfall in the lake there. The calf got all confused and turned around and started swimming back across the lake. And this, this, mother moose you thought she was in a, this was the olympics She ch- charged back into that lake just like you know full full thrust got in front of that calf and got it turned around and back on the shoreline so that was geez what a morning what a day yeah it was a <laughs> it was a good one so 50
0: years uh consecutive years here now in 2018 making at least one trip to the quetico to Quetico Park annually. And have you done some BWCA paddling along the way as well?
3: We've done that. uh, Took a church group up, uh, was part of that organization, that that adventure trip. Uh, We uh, had an opportunity to go uh, winter camping off the Kekkebek. I met a bunch of guys from the Twin Cities, and uh, I got invited to go on this snowshoe trip down in and bushwhacked across ben Chang and into Jap Lake and built Quincy's, mm-hmm. slept in the Quincy's for two nights and then sure. back out again. There was a joke about uh, one of the guys said, you know, do you see that snow drift over there? And I said, yeah, I see it. He said, well, that's where the Quincy was last year, you know, it's like it was the remains of it, you know, just craziness again. But people, you know, just, you kind of... I wouldn't say let your guard down in the a corridor boundary waters, but you're more relaxed, and uh, it's just people kid each other a little bit. There's a, there's a little banter that goes on among the guys and or women or whatever, and uh, that also adds to the trip.
0: Yeah, so for these 50—you're 77 now— Ken, and for these 50 years, have you always been taking your own canoe that you built, or did you carry a, you know, heavy aluminum along the well, way in the, the early f- days?
3: The first two trips, uh, I've got a twin brother that taught in, taught high school in Milwaukee, and so Eddie uh, decided that he was going to go up in the up into the park, and he invited four high school guys to go, and of course I had to convince him that he needed more than you know, if something happened to him, he should have another adult with him. So Eddie finally said yes. So we went up uh, and rented all of our equipment from Canadian Waters, I think. And uh, so then the second year, he invited six guys, so there were eight of us that went on another trip. And uh, that was all good. Uh, and so those first two years, we rented equipment, and then after that, we started you know, building our own canoes and getting our own equipment and borrowing equipment sometimes, Duluth packs. And, um, so it's... Uh,
0: yeah, and, and how did you get into I mean, you're a, a mechanical engineer? Or civil, civil engineer. Civil Re- engineer, okay. Retired civil retired, engineer. Retired, all right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, how did it go? I mean, you weren't a woodworker by trade all your life, you know, as a means of supporting no. a family and so forth. No.
3: I got started in Scouts, you know, Boy Scouts on the water. And uh, our folks were divorced when we were five years old. And there was an uncle that, you know, got us going and fishing. And there were guys at church and the Boy Scouts that, you know, provided that leadership uh, forever indebted for those guys. And uh, so when I became an adult, I got involved with the Boy Scouts and tried to give back. There's a, an old saying that you can't help somebody without helping yourself, and you can't hurt somebody without hurting yourself, and I believe that strongly, and I try to live up to that, and I tell people I'm selfish, they say, what do you mean you're selfish? I said, because I know that you can't help somebody without helping yourself, and it's uh throw your bread upon the water and watch it come back toasting eggs, you know, that's the philosophy, and pay it forward, and.
0: Yeah, nice. And and now your family is is uh it's a family endeavor to go on trips into Quetico with your
3: children and maybe even grandchildren at that point. Oh, at this yeah. point now. Yeah, it's we've had many trips where there's been three generations and uh one of my grandson Spencer, uh his first trip was when he was eleven months old. So I got pictures of him and uh it's all it's all it's all good, I'll tell you. Yeah,
0: no, that's great, and and uh, this has been a, a pleasure to speak with you and, and learn more about uh, the, the craft, the process of building these uh, canoes and kayaks that uh, go into the Boundary Waters that are built typically here in Grammar at North House Folk School. Ken, you're the instructor for this course. If, if somebody hears this and they were interested in saying either, you know, hey, I'm, I want to learn a little bit more about that or maybe even sign up and take this course from Ken, what's the best, means to do so? What what should somebody do?
3: Well, go ahead and and contact the school. Uh, Either call them up or get on the website. They've got a great website. You know, there's instructors coming from all over the world. It's just amazing. Uh, The the craft and the skill that these people bring. It's just, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by... When, I'm, when I teach it, I'm walking around, and whether it's going to the blacksmith shop or watching somebody make sausage or uh, do some weaving, and it just... Uh, there was a guy here from California this week, Michael Cullen, and they made these little boxes. Well, these little boxes are absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the carving that they do and the milk painting that they do, so it's just... It's a great... I say... Uh, there's a lake they call Superior, and there's a Superior school called North House. And uh, there's instructors and students coming from all over the world, and it's a great place to, to come and visit.
0: All right, fantastic. Well, this has been uh, perhaps the most interesting aspect of the gear uh, element of the podcast here, building your own canoe. I think that's, uh, that's something new for people to think about here as we... Uh, move forward with the podcast. We've been talking with Ken Kosick. He was a resident of Madison, Wisconsin. He, in, in 2018, made his 50th consecutive year of going into Quetico. Longtime paddler in the Boundary Waters. He also teaches techniques of wood strip canoe and kayak building at North House Folk School right here in Grand Marais. Ken, a true pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for
3: having me. I appreciate
0: it.
2: Well, Ken and Bob, both, uh, they leave a really beautiful
0: legacy uh, for us to follow. I mean, like you said at the top of the show, top of the podcast here, Matthew, more than 100 years, consecutive years if combined between them, 60 for Bob, 50 now this 2018 for Ken, consecutive years. And the yeah. dedication, and the you know, to come back to a place year after year is a remarkable thing take time out of your life your work uh, your family life and so forth to go to a destination such as an outdoor playground i mean people go to yellowstone national park and yosemite, and, and yosemite national yosemite, park some of these much you know some of the most visited parks in the world if not the most and they'll go maybe once twice a half dozen times unless you live right there at the at the entry to the park and that's it but for the boundary waters what we're finding through the podcast is people come back year after year and they make it a point and people stay for weeks and months and and uh, make it you know dedicate their vacation to come back here and I think that that is just an amazing attribute to this uh, wilderness that the podcast is all about
2: it's true and and the nature of the people who are coming back year after year that make up our community of paddlers and listeners is one of uh, storytelling which you know, is why we exist as a podcast. But that storytelling is what uh, kind of weaves the fabric together and that's how the, the torch is passed, through the stories. Um, and you know, we heard quite a bit recently from the younger generation and what are they telling? They're telling stories and uh, Bob's and Ken's stories are the ones that we inherit and, and then we pass on ours
0: absolutely and that's how we started this podcast Matthew Baxley here we are episode 10 uh, we started talking about stories and sharing stories of the Boundary Waters and we want to hear your stories and share those
2: speaking of don't forget October spooky scary send them to the email address podcast at gmail.com I'm thanking you in advance here
0: Anything mysterious, if you saw some lights that you can't quite explain flashing inside your tent. <laughs> Perhaps I'm speaking from experience on that one. But or anything, any scary thing, you fell out into, uh, you know at the landing and you didn't quite know how to handle the situation, that can be a scary incident. Yeah, there, it's, a, it's a
2: wide net we're throwing out there. Um, but the point is, we want to hear from you more, and uh, this is an, a fun way to do it. And on that note, we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to listen. I'd like to thank Paragus for being a sponsor and keeping this alive. And I'd like to thank Joe as usual.
0: Hey, thank you, Matthew. Great episode, episode ten. We're nearing the one year mark as we continue forward with the W T I P Boundary Waters podcast. It's October.
5: Who's <laughs> scary? To sing when I paddle in you know? Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Now, out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Oh, Rule me, rock me.